Chapter 7, please. First Corinthians chapter number seven. And let's pray. Father, thank you that we have both the information and the understanding that our Bibles have been breathed out by you that they are your words to us, that they are accurate and authoritative. And Lord, since you are the author, we pray then that you would help us to understand your words and that you would give to us insight, clarity of understanding, and then, of course, grace to submit ourselves to whatever it is you teach. Pray this blessing for us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 7, Paul turns his attention at last to the questions that the Corinthians have posed to him. He has addressed uh, to them in the early parts of the book issues that concern him. Um, And as I mentioned last week, I think we could think to this point in the book of the first four chapters dealing with church unity and chapters 5, 6, and 7 dealing with church purity. Um, The question is developed for us, or at least not developed, but inferred to us from verse number 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And as we mentioned uh, last week, there are a variety of euphemisms in these first seven verses that all deal with physical intimacy between men and women, and touch is one of them. He's not talking about a casual hug. He's not contradicting what he says of us to greet each other with holy kisses, which is certainly some physical contact. Um, He is pointing out that it is good for men and women to maintain separate, pure lives as much as possible. Um, And we know that he's using it euphemistically in verse number one because of the way he transitions in verse number two to avoid fornication. We want to do this. We want to take this position. And so in the first seven verses that we dealt with last week, Paul spoke to married couples And he spoke specifically about the fact that in a Christian marriage, physical intimacy is a biblical mandate. That this is something that God insists happen. And I'm not going to go back and re-preach all that. Our portion this evening is a little bit shorter, verses 8 through 11. And in this passage, Paul takes up a different set of people, a different criteria in verses 1 through 7, right? We are talking to those who are married. Let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. So in verses 8 through 11, there are two different categories of people that are addressed. 
And for each of them, God has his own set of criteria. Now, we'll deal with this a little bit more when we get into verse number 17. But I think we would find it helpful, folks, to remember that Paul's perspective in everything that he says throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians is written, I think, from the perspective that he has set forth in 1 Corinthians 1-2, which is that we have been called to Jesus Christ. We have been sanctified by Christ and called to be holy. And so everything that Paul addresses has that at least as a little bit of an undercurrent. Um, he He is talking about things, right, that we might wonder if they would be impediments, as we talked last week from verses 1 through 7. Is a physical relationship in a marriage an impediment to consecrated living? God, absolutely not. In fact, I insist that there be a relationship. With that, let's turn our attention, first of all, to verses 8 and 9, where we find the first category. I say there, excuse me, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So here's the first category of people. What Paul calls the unmarried and widows. Now, widows, I think we would all agree, is very simple. I mean, we all know what Paul means when he talks about widows. Widows are women whose husbands have died. But what does Paul mean by unmarried? Excuse me. If you would imagine or maybe you haven't imagined, but I'm going to tell you, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what Paul means when he refers to the unmarried. Does he mean people that have never been married? And we might obviously say, unmarried are those that are never married. But let me ask you if you would just take a quick look at verse number 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. And so immediately we begin to ask if the unmarried in verse number 8 are the never married. Are these people who have never been married? Or are they people who have been divorced? But Paul has a set of instructions for the divorced. So Paul singles out, evidently, people that have never been married, and Paul singles out people who are divorced, and now Paul talks to the unmarried. A third possibility is that when Paul uses the word unmarried, he is talking about what we would call a widower. So that in verse number 8, Paul is talking to men and to women specifically. And of course, the obvious question there is, well, why not just say widower? 
<clears throat> and the best answer that we have for that is that widower is, even in our language, relatively rare. And it was extremely rare in Paul's world. And so the speculation is, and the position that I'm going to take, although I wouldn't argue with you about it, is that what Paul is talking about here are widowed men and widowed women. People who have been married and people whose spouses have passed. To this category, and it really doesn't matter what category he is addressing, Paul is going to express the same personal opinion. And Paul's personal opinion is that it is always easier and better to serve the Lord if you are not married. And that's what he says in verse number 8. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. And I made mention of this last week, that there is no end to the discussion about whether or not Paul himself was married. There's a verse in Acts in which it appears that Paul was a member at one time of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men ruling council. I'm not sure that I accept that. But if he was, he would have had to have been married at some point in time. Because you had to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin. There's no mention of a wife. Paul never talks about his dead wife. He never talks about his ex-wife. He never talks about his wife. The only time Paul ever talks about it is in a passage like this, and again in 1 Corinthians 9, and always he leaves us with the taste in our mouths that he's not married. I do not think Paul was ever married. I think Paul was the kind of guy that we would look at and go, of course he's not married. He's married to his ministry. And whether it was Judaism killing Christians or Christianity preaching Christ to Jews, Paul was single-minded in his devotion. And his view was his best. Right? He's not arguing, by the way, we'll get to this. He's not arguing that singleness is a virtue all by itself. He is arguing that it is simpler to serve Christ if you don't have a spouse. And I think, folks, we would all understand that. And Paul will specifically address that, that there are entanglements that come to life by virtue of having a family, that a person who doesn't have a family will never be entangled with. So anyway, back to the text, right? Verses 8 and 9 are to people that Paul calls the unmarried and the widows. I think that he is referring to a category of people who have been married, but whose spouses have died. And I really say that not so much on the technical definitions of the words, but on the fact that he will come back through and talk to the other possibilities. He will talk to those that are married, and he will talk to those that have never been married, and he will talk to those that are divorced. So almost by process of elimination, I think that Paul is talking to those who had once been married and their spouse had died. And the best would be to be like Paul. Which might be the closest thing that there is to an implication that his wife was dead. 
But then he makes <clears throat> this argument, which, oh, by the way, uh, right, while we're talking about that, okay? But Paul will make the same statement, it is good for them that they abide even as I, in verse number 7. I would that all men were even as I myself, and you cannot in that from that imply that he had a wife, and he will make the same argument in verses 38 to 40. So again, I come back to this. We want to talk about Paul. I think that Paul had never been married and that Paul believed being married is a good thing, but being unmarried was an... It's just hard to imagine, folks, Paul living the life he lived, having a wife and perhaps children who traveled with him. So anyway, then back to verse number 9. But if they cannot contain... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And again, I say, folks, this is another one of those statements that we want to try and remember the broader context of why Paul is talking like that. Paul is talking specifically about the physical desire because he has been asked specifically about physical desire. In other words, Paul is not discounting the fact that marriage is good companionship. That a husband and wife can be a real blessing to each other. That they are, as Peter would call them, yoke fellows. He's not getting into all of that because he's answering a question. And he's answering a question that is dealing with the lines of a physical relationship. So since I'm answering a question about a physical relationship, here is my answer. If you've been married and your spouse is dead, you'd be better off to stay single. But if the physical desire is too strong, then by all means go ahead and marry. Because the preservation of your sexual purity is paramount. So that is his answer and explanation to those. And, and this in general, folks, this right, this is, this is a, a common stance that Paul is going to take however we look at the question. You'd be better off to serve the Lord if you were single, but not everybody can be single. And if the physical desires are strong, and if they must be met, then you would be better off to get married. That is the position that he is going to take. He's not going to argue that it's for everyone. He's going to explain that it is for him. He's going to give his opinion that it is the best. So just as in verses 1 through 7, Paul is concerned about marriage and morality, in verses 8 and 9, he again is concerned about marriage and its impact upon morality. There's only one imperative that Paul imposes upon this whole issue of marriage, which is verse 39, and that is marry a believer. If you're going to marry, marry a believer. So there is our first category of this evening. He's dealt with marriage principles in general, verses 1 through 7. And now he talks to those who are unmarried 
most likely by virtue of death of one spouse. In verses 10 through 12, Paul deals then with the second category. And to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But in if she but in if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And we'll come back and work through verses 12 down through 16 in a little more detail later. In verses 10 and 11, the second category of people are those who are married. So having spoken about marriage in general and having spoken to those who are no longer married by virtue of the death of a spouse, Paul now turns his attention to those that are married. And and again, and here's one of those places, folks, where we take kind of a sanctified, I don't mean any disrespect, but we take a bit of a sanctified guess that in verses 10 and 11, Paul is talking to a marriage that is comprised of two believers. And the reason that I think that is because in verse number 12, Paul talks to those who are married where one is a believer and one is not. And that's going to raise some additional considerations Paul is talking about, and we'll see this very clearly in verses 17 through 24, Paul is looking broadly at our state of life, our station in life. Where we are in the world, how God has, as Paul will talk about it, how God has divided his will to us. And we're not all in the same place there. Some are single, some are not single, some would like to be married, some would like to be single. As we will see, some have been Jews and some were Gentiles when they got saved, some were servants, some were free when they got saved. And God is now talking to us about how to think about where we find ourselves in life. So, if you're married, then... It is going to be a full marriage, both emotional, spiritual, and physical. And if your spouse dies, you have liberty to remarry. And now we have yet a new, if I could put it this way, we have a new source of authority mentioned. Of course, we know, folks, we're dealing with the Word of God and that God is the ultimate source. But to this point in time... Paul has been talking, and he's been talking very personally. Now, this is what I think. And if you don't follow that advice, that's okay. But this would be my recommendation to you. But now we have then a new source of authority introduced in verse number 10. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife 
depart from her husband. Let's just take a couple of minutes, right? It's, it's only 7.30, and let's, let's go back to the Gospels. Let's begin, first of all, in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. That's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus talks about that subject. And he, of course, is referring back to Deuteronomy 24 in Moses' instructions about divorce. You heard it said, put her away. But I'm saying to you that with the exception of fornication, you cannot put her away. Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is in Galilee in the north. In Matthew 19, Jesus is in Judea to the south. Verse number 3, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So there it is for the second time. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 7. Well, let's start in verse number 2. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. Jesus answered and said, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother cleaved his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And then Luke chapter 16, which you already know, of course, is basically a repetition of what he has already said. 
Matthew 16, 18. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. So to go back to 1 Corinthians 7, folks, Paul has obviously studied those words, assimilated those words, digested those words, and of course is now speaking with the inspiration of the Spirit to give us God's clear will in the matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or verse chapter 7, and verse number 10, Unto the married I command, but it's not really me giving the command. It's the Lord giving the command. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Here's the Lord's command, folks. Do not get divorced. Do not get divorced. It is really that simple. If you want to know what the Lord's will in the matter is, right? if you're a believer, this is the will of the Lord for you. Don't get divorced. No believer should ever initiate divorce, ever. That's what the Lord said. That's, that's, I mean, there it is in its distilled, simple formula. Don't get divorced. That's the summary of the Lord's viewpoint on it. Don't initiate divorce. And then, verse number 11, if she disobeys the command, which there's a radical dimension to this whole conversation, right? Because under the law, this was a right denied to women. Paul makes several radical statements or bring several radical perspectives to 1 Corinthians 7. Here's one of them because he's, he's instructing wives. But in if she depart, right? The Lord said don't, but if you do, let her remain unmarried. Let her remain unmarried. Or be reconciled. So those are the two options. I mean, stay married. That's the will of God, the directed will of God. If a person will not do that, then they have two options. They can stay unmarried or they can be reconciled to their spouse. Within the framework of the context, folks, I think that we really need to understand the hard line that is being drawn here. Why should you get married in the first place? Within the framework of Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 7, right? It's not about companionship. Right? It's not about the ability to serve the Lord as a husband and wife. It's not about children. It's not about the Garden of Eden and God's will. All those are factors. But the, 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 the narrow subject matter is physical intimacy. And so married people ought to have physical intimacy. Better to have physical intimacy than to commit fornication. 
You'd be better off single. But if the desire is there, then you fulfill the desire through marriage. Now, if your spouse dies, better to be single. But if the desire is there, better to remarry and fulfill the desire through remarriage. But if you divorce him, you're done. You either get back together with him or you stay single. That's a pretty hard, straight line. And this is one of the reasons, folks, and I really wrestled and debated whether to try and work through those texts tonight and address it and ultimately decided not to because I'm trying to keep myself to 1 Corinthians. But this is one of the reasons why the exception in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 is so important to the conversation. And it's the only place that Jesus said it is in the Gospel of Matthew. And we have been scratching our heads about it and choking each other over it since he said it. What does it mean? What is the permission? What is implied in the permission? But folks, I would just point out to you that from the framework of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 11, right, that, that we should be incredibly, incredibly careful about looking for some kind of magic loophole to open a big opening when really there is virtually no opening at all. Believers who are married are supposed to stay married. That's really the end of the conversation. And if they will not stay married, if they insist upon the divorce, then they must remain single. That's, that's the last thing God is going to say about the subject, folks. Now, right? We live in a real world where people really do get remarried and we navigate that, and I, I have dealt with that pastorally, and I would be happy to talk with you about how I would understand the exception clause privately, but it is very controversial. So we're going we're gonna to stop here tonight, right? With, with, these two, with these two things, if your spouse has passed, you are at complete liberty to remarry as long, jumping ahead to verse 39, as long as you marry another believer. And if you are presently married, it is the will of the Lord for you to stay presently married. That is his instruction. It is, it is his instruction that his people stay married. All right, let's pray, and we will have our closing, our dismissal song. Father, Grant to us, again, understanding of your word and grant to us spirits that are willing to receive it. And, Father, I pray for all of them of our marriages and for all of our children who will someday hope to make one, that they would understand what a commitment they are making. I pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.